We're going to be continuing in the book of Joshua this morning. So if you have a Bible, you're going to want to get over to Joshua chapter 7. That's where we're going to be this morning, Joshua chapter 7. Uh, so stay in Joshua 7. I'm going to read uh, for a moment from James chapter 1 because we're going to come back to this passage later on. James chapter 1, starting in verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. We're going to be talking about sin today. And uh, I was remembering this past uh, week how many of us, probably most of us, last fall watched the solar eclipse, uh, a total solar eclipse, something that only happens maybe, I don't know, once every several years. In fact, the last one in the United States was 1991. So there was all sorts of anticipation and excitement surrounding the solar eclipse. But along with that came the warnings that you will remember, all of the warnings not to look directly at the sun. All right, so if you were on Facebook or any social media in the days and weeks leading up to that solar eclipse, there were all kinds of articles and, and all kinds of posts. Don't look straight at the sun. Make sure you use uh, approved eclipse glasses or use you know a box with a hole cut in it or whatever. There were articles with terrible stories and interviews of people who said, I looked at the last eclipse and now I'm blind. So don't look at the eclipse. Don't do it. Right, And all of this uh, sort of excitement, but also alarm, reached a fever pitch. And I began to sort of get scared, like what's going to happen to me on the day of the eclipse? And I started to think maybe the safest thing is just put a bag over my head right, and go into a dark room. If you see any light, just drop to the ground, right? Put your face on the ground. It's that serious. Whatever you do, don't look at the sky that day at all. Uh, I was in a grocery store parking lot on the day of the eclipse, actually, and I saw a group of college guys looking at the sun. And I thought, don't do that, right? Because I'd seen all these warnings. I wanted to like tackle them on the ground and be like, please don't do that. Don't look at the sun, right? And I started to think about it and I thought, okay, why all of this uh, alarm and why all of these warnings? I think it's because we all recognize on some level that looking at the sun is not the sort of thing that you can do just like in moderation, Right? So there are bad habits maybe that we have. Maybe you say, you know what, I I drink too much and I need to cut down on my alcohol consumption, but I'm going to cut down to a a moderate level or or I eat too much sugar, right? I eat too many cookies, so I'm going to go from 15 cookies down to 10 cookies and we'd all go, okay, that's good, right? You can eat some cookies, just don't eat a thousand cookies. There's a moderation point that you might say that's okay, right? But looking at the sun isn't one of those activities. Right? You've never heard anybody say, I'm going to go from 10 minutes today of looking at the sun to five minutes of looking at the sun. Right? You're either looking at it or you're not looking at it. There's no middle ground. Because looking at the sun for any period of time will burn you. Right? It'll burn your eyes. It can destroy your vision and harm your life. Right? So we all go, I know that's something that I don't want to engage in at all. Now, the reason I share that story this morning is because as we look at Joshua chapter 7, what we're going to find is that there are certain activities in our life that there's no room for moderation. And sin is one of those activities. 
There's no acceptable amount of sin that we can engage in where we say, you know what, what I'm going to do is I'm just going to cut back on sin, right? As you look at the scripture, there's no okay amount of sin. Now, as we just sang, as Christians, as believers in Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus paid for all of our sin. He died for our sin. He rose again for our sin. So if you believe in him, you will not experience eternal consequences for your sin. You won't experience eternal separation from God in hell if you believe in Jesus, right? But, but don't believe then that there is some acceptable amount of sin where God says, okay, you're only lying a little bit. You're only a little bit bitter and angry. There's just some gossip or some lust in your life. And so that's, that's okay because sin is always destructive. Sin will always burn you. Sin will always leave devastation. We're going to look this morning at the life of a man named Achan. And what Achan found out is that you can try to cover up your sin. You can try to tell yourself that, look, my sin only affects me. I'm not hurting anybody. And you can believe you have found some acceptable amount of sin, but the reality is it always comes with consequences, right? And and even as I talk about Joshua chapter seven this morning, I'm aware that there are men and women in this room, probably all of us to one extent or another. We have sin in our lives that we're hiding, right? There's something going on in your life, perhaps, that you say, man, if, if everybody knew or if anybody knew, it it could ruin my life. If people knew the things that I thought about, if people knew the things that I looked at, if people knew what I did at the office when nobody was managing me, if people knew how I treated my family when nobody else is around, it could create a snowball that would ruin my life. And so there's some amount of sin maybe that you say, I've got to keep this hidden and keep it managed. And what we'll see in the life of Achan is a man who who believed exactly what we often believe, that if I can just keep it managed, then I can stay in control. And what he found is there's no moderate amount of sin that's acceptable and that won't damage our lives and set it on a course toward destruction. And so for some of us this morning, it may be that, that we're in a place where we say, you know what, I need to actively confess my sin. I need to come out from the dark into the light, maybe even before you leave the room and go to Christ's barbecue. You need to find a friend or a family member or one of the pastors and come out from the dark into the light and say, I want to begin the process of confession and restoration. And we're going to talk about why we want to do that and why the remedy to our sin is ultimately to confess it to God to confess it to others and begin the process of restoration because we worship and serve a gracious God who is ready to forgive, but hiding leads to devastation. So that's what we're gonna look at this morning. Joshua chapter seven. We're gonna see, first of all, the course of our sin as we look at Joshua chapter seven. I wanna read a few verses from Joshua seven, starting in verse one. But the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully in regard to the things under the ban. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, took some of the things under the ban. 
Therefore, the anger of the Lord burned against the sons of Israel. Now, I want to set up what's going on here in chapter 7. If you go back a couple of weeks, you remember we talked about the conquest of Jericho. That was Joshua 6, where the people marched around and around, remember, and the wall fell down and they took the city of Jericho. And God's command to them was, look, the city is under the ban. What does that mean? Everything alive needs to die. But then God specifically said this. He said, look, all of the gold, all the silver, all of the treasure that's in the city is devoted to God. You're supposed to take all the gold and silver, all the treasure in Jericho and place it in the tabernacle where it will be utilized in the worship of God. So it's not yours. It belongs to God. Okay, so right off the bat, chapter seven, right after the conquest of Jericho, it says, but there's this one guy and it says the sons of Israel acted unfaithfully according to the band because there's this one guy, his name is Achan. He took some items and he took them into his tent and he, you will find out he hid them in the ground in his tent. Okay, so what's going on with Achan right away is he has disobeyed God's command. He's taken what is holy for himself. You remember we talked about also that concept of holiness when we talked about Jericho. That holiness means that an item or a person is set aside for God's purposes, right? It's not for common use. God had said everything in Jericho, it's not for common use. Now I wanna be clear, the gold and the silver itself, it's not a bad thing, right? Nor is it a bad thing that Achan wanted to provide for himself and for his family. And in fact, we will see as we move through the book of Joshua, you're going to see periods of time where they will go into battle and God actually says, hey, in this city, all of the plunder belongs to you. In fact, in the very next battle after we're going to see here, God says that to the people. He says, look, in the next battle, you can keep all the gold. You can keep all the silver. God is generous, right? But this gold and silver from Jericho, is devoted to God. It's set aside. It's holy. So what had Achan done? He had taken something set aside for God and said, I want it for me. Right? I was reminded a few years ago, uh, my oldest daughter, she made some chocolate chip cookies using my wife's recipe. And uh, my wife makes the best chocolate chip cookies in the world. And now she has taught Elizabeth to make the chocolate chip cookies. And I'll, I'll be honest, um, they are a cookie. Oh, I have zero self-control if the cookies are in the kitchen. So it is true, like I have eaten ma- many of them, more than I care to admit at one sitting. So she made the cookies. And then I came into the kitchen one evening and uh, this is what I saw. There was a bag on the counter. And I, I, you may not be able to read that from where you are, but she had placed one cookie in a bag and it says, daddy, don't eat reserved for mommy. Now I was very offended by this bag actually (laughs) when I first saw it, because it wasn't just that it said, don't eat. It says, daddy, don't eat. right. Like the implication is nobody else is even going to think about eating this except for you. And then I paused and I thought, she's right. Actually, she's correct that, that I probably would have eaten that cookie had she not done that, right? Because I've done it before. Now, why do I share this? Here's why. Because is it bad that I want to eat a cookie? No. But she's saying that cookie isn't your cookie, right? That is set aside for mommy. It's a holy cookie, right? It's set aside for a particular purpose. When we look at Joshua 7, 
God isn't saying, look, having wealth here is bad. He's not saying having gold and bronze and silver is bad. He's saying this gold, this bronze, this silver, it belongs to God. You are to use it to worship. But Achan says, no, I want it for me. And so what we see is this pattern then uh, that Achan follows, the pattern of his sin that is the same pattern that we see throughout the scripture over and over and over again. If you look down at chapter 7, verses 20 and 21, and we're going to get there again in a minute, but, but when Achan finally gets caught and he describes what happens when he takes this gold and silver, here's what he says. Truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful mantle from Shinar and a two and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold, 50 shekels in weight, then I coveted them and I took them. And behold, they are concealed in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath it. Notice what happens. Achan walks through Jericho and God has always already said, look, none of this belongs to you, but Achan's eyes are looking for the good stuff. And so he says, I saw it. And then what happened? I I coveted it. I wanted it. I thought I need that. And then I took it. That pattern should sound familiar to you because it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter three. There was one tree in the garden of Eden. God said, hey, Adam and Eve, you can eat freely. Eat, eat from any tree in the garden, but this one. Right, and what happens, it says, Adam and Eve, they saw it. They saw that it was pleasing to look at. It was desirable to eat and they wanted it and they desired it and they took it. That's what sin is. Is I say, I want what God has not given. Why? Because I don't trust God to give me what I need. Because I don't believe that God is good. I am going to take for myself things that God has not given me. We read James chapter one again, but each one is tempted when he's carried away and enticed by his own lust, or that should say really desire. Then when his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death, right? Where does sin spring from? It springs from a heart that says, I can't trust God. God doesn't want what's best. What was going on with Achan? Achan is tired of wandering around in the wilderness eating manna. And he says, I want something better. I don't trust God to provide what I need. So he takes what God has not given. It's the same thing that was going on with Adam and Eve. It's the same thing that happens to us. So we say, look, I've got this this, uh, secret that nobody knows about. I've got this sin in my heart or in my mind. So I go to the office and maybe I'm just, I'm a little bit dishonest, but you don't understand. Like if I am completely honest, then I will not get ahead like I ought to be able to get ahead or I might lose my job and everybody does what I'm doing. And the reality is if I don't, God won't provide what I need. So I have to step outside the boundary. Or in my room, by myself, I look at things online that I know are wrong, but who am I hurting? Nobody knows who am I hurting. And if I don't, God will not provide what I need in my singleness or in my marriage. And so we say, God won't provide. right? And maybe I hang on to discontent and bitterness and greed and anger. 
Maybe, I, maybe I'm addicted to gossip because I don't trust God to judge other people. So I have to do it. And so I say, I'm gonna take what God has not given for me. That's the root of sin. See, the problem now that Achan faces is that he's taken what God has not given and he's got it, but he's got a dilemma because if anybody finds it out, he knows now that his life will be forfeited because in the law system that God had given to the nation of Israel, what he's done deserves death. So what can he do? He just buries it in his tent, in the ground, and hopes for an opportunity to utilize it at some point later. He's created a terrible situation for himself. It reminds me, maybe 20 years ago, I, was, um, I took my car to a car shop here in town, and as I walked out of the car shop, a guy drove up in his car, and he leaned out the window, and he said, hey, I have a question. Would you like to buy some speakers? And I was like, man, I, you know, my car has speakers. Um, and I don't know that you are like a reputable salesperson, right? And uh, as I'm talking to him, no joke, I hear sirens in the background. And he goes, man, I, I got to go. I'm kind of in a hurry. And he, and he leaves. I'm not making this up. And I thought, okay, what has happened? Well, clearly he has taken something that was not his. And now he's got a dilemma for himself, right? What do I do? Okay, this is Aiken's situation. He's, he's got trouble. And so, some of you, you, you find yourselves in that situation because you're caught in a sin and you're so afraid. Look, if anybody finds it out, it's gonna ruin my reputation. It's gonna ruin my life. It's gonna hamper my career, whatever it may be. And so you're hiding it. And the more you hide it, the worse things get, the longer that it goes. And so you, you say, I've got this dilemma. I don't know what to do, right? And what we're gonna see in the life of Achan, and I think it's true in our lives as well, is that the longer that we hide, the worse it gets, even though we believe that we're keeping things under control. All right, so watch what happens from here as Achan goes down this pathway and then he, he hides. We're gonna see some consequences in his life and in the life of his community that are absolutely devastating. Look with me at chapter seven, verses two through five. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth Aven, east of Bethel, and said to them, go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. They returned to Joshua and said to him, do not let all the people go up. Only about two or 3,000 men need to go up to Ai. Do not make all the people toil up there for they're few. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled from the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men and pursued them from the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent so that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Okay, so here's what happens is that they're about to take the next city and Ai is another significant city in terms of controlling access to the promised land. But Joshua and the leaders, they they make the mistake here of presumption. Notice they never say, hey God, what should we do next? Where should we go next? What would you recommend? Instead, they just send some spies in. They're probably a little overconfident after they saw the wall of Jericho fall down. And so now they go over to Ai and these guys come back and go, piece of cake. 
You just send a couple thousand people. We don't need to send everybody, just send a small force and we've got this covered. So they go up and they absolutely get whooped. And 36 people die. And the text makes it clear that those 36 people die as a consequence of Achan's hidden sin. Because Achan chose to do what he chose to do. There are consequences for his community, right? This is one of the things that we see with sin is that when we engage in sin, our community actually suffers. I wanna, I wanna say something that is so countercultural. There is no sin that doesn't hurt somebody else. Right? There is no sin that we only commit in isolation, all by ourselves in a dark room that doesn't affect anybody else. Because my capacity to love others and to serve others and to follow Jesus is always impacted by my sin. So that then I am less effective in caring for others, in loving my family, in caring for my church, in reaching out to my community. I'm less effective, which means everybody suffers because I'm not fulfilling the task that God has called me to do. There is no such thing as a private sin, right? When I was in college ministry, I cannot count the number of times that I had students come into my office devastated by some sin that their parents had been engaged in, that their parents thought was a private sin that affected nobody. And the kids knew it and they saw it. There's no such thing as a private sin. When I was a freshman in college, I lived in Dunn Hall, which at the time was just a guy's dorm on the south side of campus. And next to Dunn Hall, there was a large field that when it rained would get very, very muddy. And so one day, a bunch of us went out and we played mud football out on that field. And we just got ourselves unbelievably dirty, sloppy, muddy. It was a lot of fun. But then what we did is we walked from that field without thinking to clean ourselves in any way. We walked back through the main lobby. It looked like, if you've ever read, you know, the Peanuts comics, it looked like Pigpen, except like a hundred Pigpens had walked through the lobby of the commons and up the stairs and down the hall. And some people even put their hands on the walls so that the entire building was covered in mud. And so the RA had a special meeting with us said, why would you do that? Other people live here. Why would you take that mud and bring it in here and smear it all over the walls? What were you thinking? You weren't thinking. You weren't thinking about other people. You were thinking about you, right? You brought that filth from outside and you brought it inside. That's what Achan has done. He has taken sin and brought it into the community and the community suffers, right? And that's what we do in the midst of secret sin as we bring it from outside into the people of God and the whole community suffers. In this case, 36 people died because of Achan's secret sin. In our case, the consequences may not be so immediate and dramatic, but they are very real. Our families suffer. Our community suffers. Our church suffers. There is no hidden sin. And so the community suffers 
But then we also see as we move forward, it's not just that the people suffer. It's that God's name is also defamed. Look at verses 6 through 12. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why did you ever bring this people over the Jordan only to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? If only we had been willing to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say since Israel has turned their back before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and they will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, rise up. Why is it that you have fallen on your face? Israel has sinned and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. And they've even taken some of the things under the ban and have both stolen and deceived. Moreover, they have also put them among their own things. Therefore, the sons of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies, for they have become accursed. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy the things under the ban from your midst. Joshua's primary concern, notice this, is that because they have run away from their enemies, The Canaanites will look and they will say, hey, God isn't with these people. God must not be that strong. So we can destroy them. And Joshua says, what are you going to do for your great name? See, Joshua, at this point, when he says that, he doesn't know what Achan has done. And God says, this is a consequence of your own sin as a nation. It's your fault. He says, Joshua, get up, get off your face. It's your fault. It's the nation's fault. Because what you have done, that is what has defamed the name of God. Sin brings defamation to the name of God and as Christians to the name of Jesus Christ. I read a survey earlier this week from 2007. This was from George Barna. They they polled non-Christians and they found 85% of non-Christians when talking about Christians would use the word hypocritical, hypocritical. I found that interesting. Maybe, maybe, maybe that's unfair, right? Maybe that's unfair because I, I know many Christians that I wouldn't describe as hypocritical, but for better or worse, that is the image of Christianity all too often in our culture. All right, years ago, I read a, a book by uh, Ronald Sider. It was called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. And one of the things that he talks about is when it comes to uh, things like uh, adultery and abuse in the home and racism and violence and sexual immorality and divorce. Often what we find is that there's very little distinction between those who claim the name of Christ and those who don't. And so whether we like it or not, our sin, private and public, it has an impact on the reputation of Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be clear for a moment. As I said at the beginning, we believe in the grace of God. We believe in forgiveness for sin. There is no sin that takes you too far away from the love of Jesus Christ, no matter what it is. There is no sin that permanently disqualifies you from serving and loving Jesus Christ. And there's no sin beyond his forgiveness. But what we're going to see, as we see in Aiken's case, is is the problem comes in when we hang on to this sin and we say, I'm not going to let it go. I'm not going to repent. I'm not going to confess. I'm not going to move forward. 
because I want what I want and not what God wants. And that leads to devastation and the defaming of God's name. And so Achan creates a situation where the community suffers, God is defamed, and then thirdly, lives are destroyed. Verses 22 to 26 of chapter 7. So Joshua sent messengers and they ran to the tent. And behold, it was concealed in his tent with the silver underneath it. They took them from inside the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the sons of Israel. And they poured them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, the silver, the mantle, the bar of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that belonged to him. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. Joshua said, why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. And all Israel stoned them with stones and they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. They raised over him a great heap of stones that stands to this day. And the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Therefore, the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. The final punishment for Achan here is is death and his family's death and the destruction of his property. Now, Now recognize, again, this is under the theocratic kingdom of Israel. Joshua was authorized by God as the leader of that nation to execute the death penalty, right? We don't execute the death penalty in the church. Thank goodness for all of us. But the reality is that his life, the lives of his family, and the lives of 36 other men and their families are destroyed because of Achan's hidden sin. Some of you have seen the devastation that sin can wreak in your life and in your family's life and in the community. And so these consequences are real. Lives are destroyed. Right, and so, so we see that, that Achan, interestingly, becomes a part of the ban that we talked about. Right? Remember in, in, when they took Jericho, all of the pagan people and all of their property was to be either destroyed or devoted to the Lord. Achan himself now finds himself standing on the wrong side of that line because of his sin. Right, and so the community suffers. God is defamed. Lives are destroyed. There is no hidden sin that has no consequences for anybody else. So what do we do then? What's the remedy? I want to look then at the middle part of the passage for just a moment that we didn't look at earlier, starting in verse 13. As God is addressing Joshua, he says, Joshua, rise up, right? Get up, consecrate the people and say, consecrate yourselves For tomorrow, for thus the Lord, the God of Israel has said, there are things under the ban in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you have removed the things under the ban from your midst. In the morning, then you shall come near by your tribes and it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes by lot shall come near by families and the family which the Lord takes shall come near by households and the household which the Lord takes shall come near man by man. It shall be that the one who is taken with things under the ban shall be burned with fire, he and all that belongs to him, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord and because he has committed a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua arose early in the morning and brought Israel near by tribes and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the family of Judah near and he took the family of of the Zerahites and he brought the family of the Zerahites near, man by man, and Zabdi was taken. He brought his household near, man by man, and Achan, 
son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, from the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, my son, I implore you, give glory to the Lord, the God of Israel, and give praise to him and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. So Achan answered Joshua and said, truly, I have sinned against the Lord, the God of Israel, and this is what I did. And we saw the rest as it played out from there. Here's what I want us to notice when we talk about the remedy for sin. Okay, the, f- the first thing I want to point out is this. The remedy for sin begins with confession. Okay, now, I want you to think about how this scene plays out for a moment, because what happens? It's not that all of a sudden God sends a lightning bolt down and strikes Achan and his family dead, is it? He says, Joshua, here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up and you stand before the people and you say, hey, tomorrow we're going to know who it was, right? God's going to reveal it. So you need to go consecrate yourselves and come back in the morning. Now, at that moment, do you think that Achan hearing that was beginning to tremble? Absolutely. What would have been the best course of action for Achan at that moment? See, you know, tomorrow you're going to die. So what would be the best course of action? Well, we see it throughout the scriptures, actually. The best course of action is to confess now. As I look at this passage, I can't get beyond the impression that God gives Achan so many opportunities to confess. So they go to bed, they get up in the morning, and Joshua says, okay, here we go. We're going to call the the people by lot, right? So we're going to look at all the tribes. We're going to draw a straw, whichever one draws, the short straw or the long straw or whatever. That's the tribe that's going to come forward. So they draw, and they draw the tribe of Judah. And here's Achan thinking, that's my tribe. And then they draw again, and they draw his family. And he's like, oh, man, getting a little closer. And then they draw again, and they draw him. Right? This whole process probably took the whole day to play out as people came forward. And as they drew lot after lot after lot, and the whole time, Achan says nothing. Now, I want you to think for a minute, if you can remember the book of Jonah. Okay, think about the book of Jonah for a moment. What happens in the book of Jonah? God sends Jonah to these people in Nineveh. And what is Jonah supposed to do? Now, hang with me for a minute, because this actually does relate to what we're talking about. Okay, Jonah goes through the, around the city of Nineveh, and what does he say? He says, yet 40 days, and Nineveh will be what? Destroyed. God's going to destroy it. Just like Sodom and Gomorrah, rain, fire, or whatever from heaven, you're all going to die. There is no statement of, but if you confess and repent, God will show you mercy. But it's implied, isn't it? Because the king of Nineveh, what does he do? He goes to his people and he says, hey, what if we confess our sin?" And repent before God and put on sackcloth and ashes. The the king says, who knows? Maybe, maybe this God will be gracious. And so they do. And God doesn't destroy them. And what does Jonah do? Jonah is really upset. And he says, God, this is why I got into that dumb boat and tried to go away in the first place. Because I knew this is who you are. I knew you're a gracious and merciful God. I knew it. I knew it. And so he goes and he sits under a little plant and he has an amazing pity party because he says, I knew that's who you are. Same God. He gives Achan so many opportunities and Achan waits until the last possible moment. When I was in junior high, I had a 
coach, I still remember Coach Matthews. He was my PE coach at our junior high. And PE was uh, just a terrible, I'll just be honest, terrible experience for me throughout junior high. It was like Lord of the Flies. I hated it. And this coach did not help. He was angry. He was mean. And one day uh, we had to, you know, work out with like some weights or something. And and, um, I uh, accidentally left the barbell on the bench, on kind of the padded bench, which which was a big no-no. Nobody was supposed to do that. And uh, we moved on with the rest of the class until about 15 minutes later, Coach Matthews came in and he saw that barbell and he goes, who did that? Who left that on the bench? Now, I have to tell you, I had seen Coach Matthews physically throw a barbell at a child before. So I was afraid. So we're standing in a line. He goes, who did that? And I'm not going to say I did it. So, so I'm standing there and I'm beginning to just, I, I, I feel the, the sweat, you know, cause it's like, I, I'm probably not the only one that knows it was me. And he doesn't know it's me. And finally, he says those words that every coach eventually has to say. He says, if you don't say you did it, whoever did it, we are all going to be punished and run laps for the rest of the period, which was a while at that point. And so I had a dilemma, right? Either I say it now or I wait until I am ratted out by one of the other kids. Or we all run laps and then they will find me later, right? (laughs) I minimize the consequences now or I maximize the consequences later. Aiken had that choice and he chose the maximum consequences. He waited until it was the last possible moment when he was found out. And then when he can't get away anymore, he says, yeah, it was me. And as I read this passage, I cannot help but think about all the times throughout Scripture where God responds with grace and mercy to those who humble themselves and confess. This was the difference between King Saul and King David when each of them was found out in their sin. David confessed and repented immediately. Saul dug in and he made excuses. And Saul was removed. David's line continued. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Better to confess now and seek restoration than to face harsher consequences. Even for those of us who know Jesus Christ, we don't, we don't face the consequence of going to hell because our sins have been forgiven, but there are very real consequences for sin. Our families are damaged. Our relationship with God is strained. As we look throughout the scripture, those who live faithfully are honored with reward and the opportunity to reign with Jesus Christ in his kingdom. And we run the risk of forfeiting that reward. There are very real consequences. And so the scripture would urge us, confess and seek forgiveness now. And then as the passage goes on, they, they remove the sin, right? They, they destroy Achan and his family and the things under the ban. They remove it from their midst. Even in the New Testament, at times you see this pattern play out. Acts chapter five, Ananias and Sapphira. They sell a piece of land and they lie about how much they made and how much they're giving. And because of their dishonesty, they're put to death, right? The hand of God. 
They drop dead. Paul wrote this to the early church in 1 Corinthians 5. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ, our Passover, has also been sacrificed. What's he saying? There's no amount of sin that is safe. Get rid of it now. And the process begins when we're willing to come out of the dark and say, God, I I have sinned and I need your forgiveness, but I also need your strength through the power of the spirit to walk forward in holiness. All right, and it may be that you, you need to find a family member, maybe your spouse, somebody else in your family, a roommate, a friend, a pastor, and you, you say, you know what, I, I need accountability. I'm going to confess I struggle with this sin, right? And, and avoid the, the vague definitions, right? Mistakes were made and I regret it. Okay? No, I sinned and this is how. You don't have to tell everybody, but tell God and tell somebody you trust and seek prayer and restoration. There is no amount of sin that is safe. Throughout um, my uh, adult life, I've had two or three men in my life that that I've been able to to meet with for prayer and for confession. And I remember one day I was meeting with those guys and we were talking about some of the sins and the struggles in our own hearts and in our own lives. And one of the other guys, he, he said, I hate this. I hate doing this, but I need it because it's deeply uncomfortable to bring the darkness out into the light, but it's the only way to find forgiveness and restoration. And so we're going to celebrate communion in just a moment. And here's the question that I want us to think about as the men prepare and uh, the band is going to come back up. Here's the question I want us to think about. Is there sin in your life that needs confession and removal? And will you take steps to deal with it today? Maybe you need to go home instead of going to Kreitz. And I'm I'm really sorry for the organizers of the lunch if everybody goes home. But, But maybe that's what you need to do. Maybe you need to find somebody before you leave the room. Maybe you need to spend some time with the Lord this morning before you leave the room. And say, there's hidden sin in my life that I know is leading me down the path of destruction. And God, I need help. I need forgiveness and restoration. Is there sin in your life that needs confession and removal? As we celebrate communion, the good news is what we're celebrating is that Jesus died for the penalty of our sin and he rose again. So we don't have to experience eternal condemnation because of our sin. But as we move toward communion, the scripture is clear that as we move toward it, we want to partake of communion in a heart and a spirit of purity and holiness before God. So as the elements come around, it may be even this morning that you say, you know what, I need to let them pass because I need to get right before the Lord first. And it may be that as the elements come around, it's an opportunity as well to say, thank you, God, for Jesus Christ and help me to follow you in holiness. All right, so let's ponder that question as the elements come forward. First Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, Paul wrote, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. 
And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and then we'll close in worship. Father, we are grateful. Above all, we're grateful for the death of Jesus Christ. Lord, if there are any in this room who do not know you yet through Jesus, I pray this would be the morning that they trust in you for forgiveness of their sin and eternal life, knowing that we can have eternal life through you. Father, for those who um, need confession and, and repentance this morning, I pray that we wouldn't hide. I pray that we would seek your forgiveness and restoration now. Father, we're grateful for your grace. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.